0: 8. As below, so above. No pain without gain. A mind for puzzles. Mr. Bent's sad past. Something in the wardrobe. Wonderful money. Thoughts on Madness by Igor. A pot thickens. Hubert tapped thoughtfully on one of the glooper's tubes. Igor, he said. Yes, master, said Igor behind him. Hubert jumped. I thought you were over by your lightning cells, he managed. I was, sir, but I am here now. What was it you wanted? You've wired up all the valves, Igor. I can't make any changes. Yes, sir, said Igor calmly. There would be amazingly dire consequences, sir. But I want to change some parameters, Igor, said Hubert, absent-mindedly taking a rain hat off the peg. I'm afraid there is a problem, sir. You asked me to make the glooper as accurate as possible. Well, of course. Accuracy is vital. It is extremely accurate, sir, said Igor, looking uncomfortable. Possibly too accurate, sir. This possibly caused Hubert to grope for an umbrella. How can anything be too accurate? Igor looked around. Suddenly he was on edge would you mind if I wind down on the lisp a little, sir? Can you do that? Oh, yes, or indeed, yes, sir, but it's a clan thing, you see. It's expected like the stitches. But I think you will find the explanation hard enough to understand as it is. Well, there, thank you. Go ahead, please. It was quite a long explanation. Hubert listened with care, his mouth open the term cargo world passed, and was followed by a short dissertation on the hypothesis that all water, everywhere, knows where all the other water is, some interesting facts about hyphenated silicon and what happens to it in the presence of cheese, the benefits and hazards of morphic resonation in areas of high background magic, the truth about identical twins, and the fact that if the fundamental occult maxim, as above, so below, was true, then so was as below, so above. The silence that followed was broken only by the tinkle of water in the glooper, and the sound of the former Owlswick's pencil as he worked away with demon-haunted skill. "'Do you mind going back to the lisping, please?' said Hubert. "'I don't know why, it just sounds better that way.' "'Very good, Thar.' "'All right. Now, are you really saying that I can now change the economic life of the city by adjusting the glooper?' "'It's like a witch's wax doll and I've got all the pins.' "'That is correct, sir. A very nice analogy.' Hubert stared at the crystal masterpiece. The light in the undercroft was changing all the time as the economic life of the city pumped itself around the tubes, some of them no thicker than a hair. "'It's an economic model, in fact, which is the real thing.' "'They are identical, sir.' So. With one hammer blow, I could throw the city into an irrevocable economic crash. Yes, sir. Do you want me to fetch a hammer? Hubert stared up at the rushing, trickling, foaming thing that was the glooper, and his eyes bulged. He started to giggle, but it grew very quickly into a laugh. <laughs> Can you get me a glass of water, please? <laughs> <laughs> the laughter stopped abruptly. That can't be right, Igor. Really, sir? Yes, indeed. Look at our old friend, flask two four four a. Can you see it? It's empty. Indeed, sir. Indeed, indeed, said Hubert. Flask two four four a represents the gold in our very own vaults, Igor. And ten tons of gold just don't get up and walk away, eh? <laughs> C- could you get me that glass of water I asked for? <laughs> a smile played around Cosmo's lips, which was a dangerous playground for anything as innocent as a smile. All of them? he said. Well, all the counting house clerks said heretofore, they just ran out into the street. Some of them were in tears. A panic, in fact, murmured Cosmo. He looked at the picture of veterinary opposite his desk and was sure it winked at him. Apparently, it was some problem with the chief cashier, sir. Mr. Bent. Apparently, he made a mistake, sir. They said he was muttering to himself and then just ran out of the room. They say that some of the staff had gone back in to search for him. Malvolio Bent made a mistake, I think not. "'said Cosmo. "'They say he ran off, sir.' "'Cosmo very nearly "'raised an eyebrow "'without mechanical aid. "'It was that close. "'Ran off? "'Was he carrying "'any large and heavy bags? "'They usually do.' "'I believe he wasn't, sir,' "'said heretofore. "'That would have been "'helpful.' "'Cosmo leaned back "'in his chair, "'pulled off the black glove "'for the third time today, "'and held out his hand "'at arm's length. "'The ring did look impressive, especially against the pale blue of his finger. "'Have you ever seen a run on a bank, Drumnot? he said. "'Have you ever seen the crowds fighting for their money?' "'No, sir,' said Heretofore, who was beginning to worry again. The tight boots had been, well, funny, but surely a finger shouldn't look that colour. "'It's a dreadful sight. It's like watching a beached whale being eaten alive by crabs,' said Cosmo turning his hand, so that the light showed up the shadowy V. It may squirm in its agony, but there can be only one outcome. It is a terrible thing, if done properly. This is how Vetinari thinks, his soul exulted. Plans can break down. You cannot plan the future. Only presumptuous fools plan. The wise man steers. As a director of the bank, and, of course, a concerned citizen, he said dreamily, I shall now write a letter to the Times. Yes, sir, of course, said heretofore, and shall I send for a jeweler, sir? I understand they have some fine little snips that— No pain without gain, Dramnot. it sharpens my thinking, the glove went back on. Er, and then heretofore gave up. He'd tried his best, but Cosmo was bent on his own destruction, and all a sensible man could do was to make as much money as possible, and then stay alive to spend it. "'I've had another stroke of luck, sir,' he ventured. He'd have liked more time, but it was clear that time was getting short. "'Indeed. What is this?' "'That project I have been working on.' "'Very expensively, yes.' "'I believe I can get you veterinari's stick, sir.' "'You mean his sword-stick?' "'Yes, sir. As far as I know, the blade has never been drawn in anger.' I understood it was always close to him. I didn't say it would be easy, sir, or cheap, but after much, much work, I now see a clear way, said heretofore. They say the steel of the blade was taken from the iron in the blood of a thousand men. So I have heard, sir. Have you seen it? Very briefly, sir. For the first time in his career, heretofore found himself feeling sorry for Cosmo. There was a kind of yearning in the man's voice. He didn't want to usurp veterinari. There were plenty of people in the city who wanted to usurp veterinari, but Cosmo wanted to be veterinari. What was it like? The voice was pleading. Poison from the sickening finger must have got to his brain, thought heretofore. But his mind is pretty poisonous to begin with. Perhaps they'll be friends. Eh? Uh, well, the handle and scabbard are just like yours, sir, but a little worn. The blade, though, is grey and looks grey. Yes, sir. It looks aged and slightly pitted. But here and there, when the light catches it, there are little red and gold flecks. I have to say that it looks ominous. The flecks of light would be the blood, of course," said Cosmo thoughtfully or possibly, yes, very possibly, the trapped souls of those who died to make the dreadful blade. I had not thought of that, sir, said heretofore, who had spent two nights with a new blade, some hematite, a brass brush, and some chemicals to produce a weapon that looked as though it had spring for your throat of its own accord. You could get it to-night? I think so, sir. It will be dangerous, of course. "'And require yet more expense, I imagine,' said Cosmo, with rather more insight than heretofore would have expected in his current state. "'There are so many bribes, sir. He will not be happy when he finds out, and I daren't risk the time it would take to make an exact replacement. Yes, I see.' Cosmo pulled off the black glove again and looked at his hand. There seemed to be some greenish tint to his finger now, and he wondered if there was some copper in the ring's alloy. But the pink, almost red streaks moving up his arm looked very healthy. Yes, get the stick, he murmured, turning his hand to catch the light from the lamps. Odd, though, he couldn't feel any heat on the finger, but that didn't matter. He could see the future so clearly—the shoes, the cap, the ring, the stick—surely, as he filled the occult space occupied by Vettinari, the wretched man would feel himself getting weaker and more confused, and he'd get things wrong and make mistakes. See to it, Drumnot, he said. Lord Havelock Vettinari pinched the bridge of his nose. It had been a long day, and was clearly going to be a long evening. "'I think I need a moment to relax. Let's get it over with,' he said. Drumknot walked over to the long table, which at this time of day held copies of several editions of the Times, his lordship being keen on keeping track of what people thought was going on. Veterinari sighed. People told him things all the time. Lots of people had been telling him things in the last hour. They told him things for all sorts of reasons. To gain some credit, to gain some money, for a favour quid pro quo, out of malice, mischief, or suspiciously, out of a professed regard for the public good. What it amounted to was no information but a huge, argus eyed ball of little wiggling factoids out of which some information could, with care, be teased. His secretary laid before him the paper, carefully folded to the correct page and place, which was occupied by a square filled with a lot of smaller squares, some of them containing numbers. Today's Jikan no Muda, sir, he said. Vetinari glanced at it for a few seconds, and then handed it back to him. The patrician shut his eyes, drummed his fingers on the desktop for a moment. Hmm. Nine, six, three, one, seven, four. Drumnot scribbled hastily as the numbers streamed, and Vetinari eventually concluded. Eight, four, seven, three. And I'm sure they used that one last month, on a Monday, I believe. Seventeen seconds, sir said Drumnot, his pencil still catching up. "'Well, it has been a tiring day,' said Vetinari. "'And what is the point? Numbers are easy to outwit. They can't think back. The people who devise the crosswords, now they are indeed devious. Who would know that Piss-Dixies are ancient Ephibian carved bone needle-holders?' "'Well, a you, sir, of course,' said Drumnot, carefully stacking the files and the Curator of Ephibian Antiquities at the Royal Art Museum, Puzzler of the Times, and Miss Grace Speaker, who runs the pet shop in Pellicle Steps. We should keep an eye on that pet shop, Drumlot. A woman with a mind like that, content to dispense dog food? I think not. Indeed, sir, I shall make a note. I'm pleased to hear that your new boots have ceased squeaking, by the way. Thank you, sir. They have broken in nicely. Veterinari stared pensively at the day's files. Mr. Bent, Mr. Bent, Mr. Bent, he said. The mysterious Mr. Bent. Without him, the Royal Bank would be in far more trouble than it has been, and now that it is without him, it will fall over. It revolves around him. It beats to his pulse. Old Lavish was frightened of him, I'm sure. He said he thought that Bent was a— he paused. "'Sir,' said Drumnot, "'let us just accept the fact that he has, in every way, proved to be a model citizen,' said Vetinari. "'The past is a dangerous country, is it not? There is no file on him, sir. He has never drawn attention to himself. All I know for sure is that he arrived here as a child on a cart owned by some travelling accountants.'" "'What?' "'Like tinkers and fortune-tellers,' said Moist, as the cab rocked its way through the streets that grew narrower and darker. Eh, suppose you could say so,' said Miss Drapes, with a hint of disapproval. "'They do big, you know, circuits all the way up to the mountains, doing the books for little businesses, helping people with their taxis, that sort of thing,' she cleared her throat. "'Whole families of them. It must be a wonderful life.' "'Every day a new ledger,' said Moist, nodding gravely and by night they drink beer, and happy, laughing accountants dance the double-entry polka to the sound of accordions. Do they? said Miss Drapes nervously. I don't know. It would be nice to think so, said Moist. Well, that explains something, at least. He was obviously ambitious. All he could hope for on the road was being allowed to steer the horse, I suppose. He was thirteen, said Miss Drapes, and she blew her nose loudly. It's so sad. She turned a tearful face toward Moist. "'There's something dreadful in his past, Mr. Lipstick. They say one day some men came to the bank and asked—' "'This is it, Mrs. Cakes,' said the cabman, pulling up sharply. "'And that'll be eleven pence, and don't ask me to hang about, "'cause they'll have the horse up on bricks and it's shoes off in a wink.' The door of the boarding-house was opened by the hairiest woman Moist had ever seen, but in the area of Elm Street you learned to discount this sort of thing. Mrs. Cake was famously accommodating to the city's newly arrived undead, giving them a safe and understanding haven until they could get on their feet, however many they had. Mrs. Cake, he said. Mother's at church, said the woman. She said to expect you, Mr. Lipwig. You have a Mr. Bent staying here, I believe? The banker, room seven, on the second floor. But I don't think he's in. He's not in trouble, is he? Moist explained the situation aware all the while of doors opening a fraction in the shadows beyond the woman. The air was sharp with the smell of disinfectant. Mrs. Cake believed that cleanliness was more to be trusted than godliness, and besides, without that sharp note of pine, half the clientele would be driven mad by the smell of the other half, and in the middle of all this was the silent, featureless room of Mr. Bent, chief cashier. The woman, who volunteered that her name was Ludmilla, let them in very reluctantly with a master key. He's always been a good guest, she said. Never a moment's trouble. One glance took in everything. The narrow room, the narrow bed, the clothes hanging neatly around the walls, the tiny jug and basin set, the incongruously large wardrobe. Lives collect clutter, but Mr. Bentz did not, unless, of course, it was all in the wardrobe. Most of your long-term guests are unde differently alive, said Ludmilla sharply. Yes, of course. So I'm wondering why Mr. Bent would stay here. Mr. Lipwick, what are you suggesting? said Miss Drapes. You must admit it's rather unexpected, said Moist. And, because she was already distraught enough, he didn't add, I don't have to suggest anything. It suggests itself. Tall. Dark. Gets in before dawn. Leaves after dark. Mr. Fusspot growls at him. Compulsive counter. Obsessive over detail. "'gives you a gentle attack of the creeps "'which makes you feel mildly ashamed, "'sleeps on a long, thin bed, "'stays at Mrs. Cakes, "'where the vampires hang up. "'It's not very hard to connect the dots.' "'This isn't about the man "'who was here the other night, is it?' "'said Ludmilla. "'What man would that be? "'Didn't give a name. "'Just said he was a friend, "'all in black, at a black cane with a silver skull on it. "'Nasty piece of work, Mum said. "'Mind you,' Ludmilla added. "'She says that about nearly everyone.' He had a black coach. Not Lord Veterinari, surely. Oh, no, Mum's all for him, except she thinks he ought to hang more people. No, this one was pretty stout, Mum said. Oh, really, said Moist. Well, thank you, ma'am. Well, perhaps we should be going. Uh, By the way, do you by any chance have a key to that wardrobe? No key. He put a new lock on it years ago, but Mum didn't complain because he's never any trouble. It's one of those magic ones they sell at the university. Ludmilla went on as Moist examined the lock. The trouble with the wretched magical ones was that just about anything could be a key, from a word to a touch. It's rather strange that he hangs all his clothes on the walls, isn't it? He said, straightening up. Ludmilla looked disapproving. We don't use the word strange in this household. Differently normal, Moist suggested. That'll do. There was a warning glint in Ludmilla's eye. Who can say what is truly normal in this world? Well, being someone whose fingernails don't visibly extend when they're annoyed would be a definite candidate, thought Moist. Well, we should get back to the bank, he said. If Mr. Bent turns up, do tell him we people are looking for him. And cared about him, said Miss Drapes quickly, and then put a hand over her mouth and blushed. I just wanted to make money, thought Moist, as he led the trembling Miss Drapes back to the area where cabs dared to go. I thought life in banking was... Profitable boredom punctuated by big cigars. Instead, it has turned out differently normal. The only really sane person in there is Igor, and possibly the turnip, and I'm not sure about the turnip. He dropped the snuffling Miss Drapes off at her lodgings in Welcome Soap, with a promise to let her know when the errant Mr. Bent broke cover, and took the cab onward to the bank. The night guards had already arrived, but quite a few clerks were still hanging around apparently unable to come to terms with the new reality. Mr. Bent had been a fixture, like the pillars. Cosmo had been round to see him. It wouldn't have been a social call. What had it been? A threat? Well, no one liked being beaten up. But perhaps it was more sophisticated. Perhaps it was, We'll tell people you are a vampire. To which a sensible person would reply, Stick it where the sun shineth not. That would have been a threat twenty years ago, but today— There were plenty of vampires in the city, neurotic as hell, wearing a black ribbon to show they'd signed the pledge, and, in general, getting on with, for want of a better word, their lives. Mostly, people just accepted it. Day after day went past with no trouble, and so the situation became regarded as normal. Differently normal, but still normal. Okay, Mr. Bent had kept quiet about his past, but that was hardly a pitchforking matter. He'd been sitting in a bank for forty years, doing sums for heaven's sake. But perhaps he didn't see it that way. You measured common sense with a ruler. Other people measured it with a potato. He didn't hear Gladys' approach. He just became aware that she was standing behind him. I have been very worried about you, Mr. Vig. she rumbled. Thank you, Gladys, he said cautiously. I will make you a sandwich. You like my sandwiches? "'That would be kind of you, Gladys, but Miss Dearhart will be joining me shortly for dinner upstairs.' The glow in the golem's eyes faded for a moment and then grew brighter. "'Miss Dearheart?' "'Yes, she was here this morning.' "'A lady?' "'She's my fiance, Gladys. She will be here quite a lot, I expect.' Fiance, said Gladys. "'Ah, yes, I am reading twenty tips to make your wedding go with a swing.' Gladys's eyes dimmed. She turned around and plodded toward the stairs. Moist felt like a heel. Of course, he was a heel, but that didn't make feeling like one feel any better. On the other hand, she—damn, he—it—Gladys—was the fault of misplaced female solidarity. What could he hope to achieve against that? bell would have to do something about it. He was aware that one of the senior clerks was hovering politely. "'Yes,' he said. "'Can I help you?' "'What do you want us to do, sir?' "'What's your name?' "'Spittle, sir. Robert Spittle.' "'Why are you asking me, Bob?' "'Because the chairman goes woof, sir.' "'Safe need locking up. So does the ledger room. Mr. Bent had all the keys. It's Robert, sir, if you don't mind.' "'Are there any spare keys?' "'There might be in the chairman's office, sir,' said Spittle. "'Look.' "'Robert, I want you to go home and get a good night's sleep, okay? "'And I'll find the keys and turn every lock I can find. "'I'm sure Mr. Bent will be with us tomorrow, "'but if he's not, I'll call a meeting of the senior clerk's. "'I mean, ha, you must know how it all works. "'Well, yeah, of course, only, well, but—' "'The clerk's voice faded into silence. "'But there's no Mr. Bent,' thought Moist, "'and he delegated with the same ease that oysters tango what the hell are we going to do?' "'There's people here. So much for bankers' as ours,' said a voice in the doorway. "'In trouble again, I hear.' It was Adora Bell, and of course she meant, "'Hello, it's good to see you.' "'You look stunning,' said Moist. "'Yes, I know,' said Adora Bell. "'What's happening? The cabbie told me all the staff had walked out of your bank?' Later Moist thought, "'That was when it all went wrong.' "'You have to leap on the stallion of rumour "'before he's out of the yard "'so that you might be able to pull on the reins. "'You should have thought. "'What did it look like "'with staff running out of the bank? "'You should have run to the Times' office. "'You should have got in the saddle "'and turned it right around there and then. "'But Adora Bell did look stunning. "'Besides, all that had happened "'was that a member of staff "'had a funny turn and left the building. "'What could anyone make of that?' "'And the answer, of course, was anything they wanted to. He was aware of someone else behind him. Miss Lipfig, sir. Moist turned. It was even less fun looking at Igor when you'd just been looking at Adora Bell. Igor, this is really not the time, Moist began. I know I'm not supposed to come upstairs, sir, but Mr. Clamp says he has finished his drawing. It is very good. What was all that about? said Adora Bell. I think I nearly got two of the words. Oh, there's a man down in the forni—the cellar who is designing a dollar note for me. Paper money, in fact. Really? I'd love to see that. You would? It was truly wonderful. Moist looked at the back and the front of the dollar note designs. Under Igor's brilliant white lights, they looked rich as plum pudding and more complicated than a dwarf contract. We're going to make so much money, he said aloud. Wonderful job, Owls, Mr. Clamp. I'm going to hold on to the Owls wick, said the artist nervously. It's the Jenkins that matters after all. Well, yes, said Moist. There must be dozens of Owls wicks around. He looked at Hubert, who was on a step ladder and peering hopelessly at the tubing. How's it going, Hubert? he said. The money's still rushing around okay, is it? What? Oh, fine, 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 said Hubert almost knocking over the ladder in his haste to get down. He looked at Adora Bell with an expression of uncertain dread. This is Adora Bell dearheart Hubert, said Moist, in case the man was about to flee. She is my fiancée. She's a woman, he added, in view of the worried look. Adora Bell held out her hand and said, Hello, Hubert. Hubert stared. It's okay to shake hands, Hubert, said Moist carefully. Hubert's an economist. That's like an alchemist, but less messy. So, you know how the money moves around, do you, Hubert? said Adorabel, shaking an unresisting hand. At last, the notion of speech dawned on Hubert. I welded one thousand and ninety-seven joints, he said, and blew the law of diminishing returns. I shouldn't think anyone's ever done that before, said Adorabel. Hubert brightened up. This was easy. We are not doing anything wrong, you know, he said. "'I'm sure you aren't,' said Adora Bell, trying to pull her hand away. "'It can keep track of every dollar in the city, you know. The possibilities are endless. But, 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 um, of course, we're not upsetting things in any way.' "'I'm very glad to hear it, Hubert,' said Adora Bell, tugging harder. "'Of course, we are having teething troubles, but everything is being done with immense care. Nothing has been lost because we've left a valve open or anything like that.' How intriguing, said Adora Bell, bracing her left hand on Hubert's shoulder and wrenching the other one free. We have to go, Hubert, said Moist. Keep up the good work, though. I'm very proud of you. You are, said Hubert. Gosmore said I was insane and wanted Auntie to sell the gloop of a scrap. Typical, hide-bound, old-fashioned thinking, said Moist. This is the century of the anchovy. The future belongs to men like you who can tell us how everything works. It does, said Hubert. You mark my words, said Moist, ushering bell firmly toward the distant exit. When they were gone, Hubert sniffed the palm of his hand and shivered. They were nice people, weren't they? He said. Yes, master. Hubert looked up at the glittering, trickling pipes of the glooper, faithfully mirroring in its ebbing and flowing the tides of money around the city. Just one blow could rattle the world, it was a terrible responsibility. Igor joined him. They stood, in a silence broken only by the sloshing of commerce. "'What shall I do, Igor?' said Hubert. "'In the old country we have a thing,' Igor volunteered. "'A what?' "'A thing. We say, if you don't want the monster, you don't pull the lever.' "'You don't think I've gone mad, do you, Igor?' "'Many great men have been considered mad, Mr. Hubert. Even Dr. Hanth Thorvord was called mad. But I put it to you, could a madman have created a revolutionary living brain extractor?' "'Is Hubert quite normal?' said Adora Bell, as they climbed the marble staircase toward dinner. "'By the standards of obsessive men who don't get out into the sunlight,' said Moist, "'pretty normal, I'd say.' he acted as if he'd never seen a woman before. He's just not used to things that don't come with a manual, said Moist. Ha! said Adorabel. Why is it only men that get like that? Earns a tiny wage working for golems, thought Moist. Puts up with graffiti and smashed windows because of golems. Camps out in wilderness, argues with powerful men. All for golems. But he didn't say anything because he'd read the manual. They had reached the managerial floor. Adora Bell sniffed. Isn't that just wonderful, she said. Wouldn't it turn a rabbit into a carnivore? Sheep's head, said Moist gloomily. Only to make the broth, said Adora Bell. All the soft wobbly bits get taken out first, don't worry. You've just been put off by the old joke, that's all. What old joke? Oh, come on. A boy goes into a butcher's shop and says, Mum says, can we please have a sheep's head, and you're to leave the eyes in, because it's got to see us through the week? You don't get it. It's using see in the sense of to last, and also in the sense of, well, to see. I just think it's a bit unfair to the sheep, that's all. Interesting, said Adorabel. You eat nice, anonymous lumps of animals, but think it's unfair to eat the other bits. You think the head goes off thinking, at least he didn't eat me? Strictly speaking, the more we eat of an animal, the happier its species should be, since we wouldn't need to kill so many of them. Moist pushed open the double doors, and the air was full of wrongness again. There was no Mr. Fusspot. Normally, he'd be waiting in his in-tray, ready to greet Moist with a big slobbery welcome, but the tray was empty. The room seemed larger, too, and this was because it also contained no Gladys there was a little blue collar on the floor. The smell of cooking filled the air. Moist ran down the passage to the kitchen, where the golem was standing solemnly by the stove, watching the rattling lid of a very large pot. Grubby foam slid down and dripped onto the stove. Gladys turned when she saw Moist. I am cooking your dinner, Mr. Lipwig." The dark moppets of dread played their paranoid hopscotch across Moist's inner eyeballs. Could you just put the ladle down and step away from the pot, please, said Adorabel, suddenly beside him. I am cooking Mr. Liebvig's dinner, said Gladys, with a touch of defiance. The scummy bubbles, it seemed to Moist, were getting bigger. Yes, and it looks as if it's nearly done, said Adorabel. So I would like to see it, Gladys. There was silence. Gladys! In one movement the golem handed her the ladle and stood back, half a ton of living clay moving as lightly and silently as smoke. Cautiously Adorabel lifted the pot's lid and plunged the ladle into the seething mass. Something scratched at Moist's boot. He looked down into the worried goldfish eyes of Mr. Fusspot. Then he looked back at what was rising out of the pot and realized that it was at least thirty seconds since he'd last drawn a breath. Peggy came bustling in. Oh, there you are, you naughty boy, she said, picking up the little dog. Would you believe it? He got all the way down to the cold room. She looked around, brushing hair out of her eyes. Oh, Gladys, I did tell you to move it onto the cool plate when it started to thicken. Moist looked at the rising ladle, and in the flood of relief, various awkward observations scrambled to be heard. I've been in this job less than a week. The man I really depend on has run away screaming. I'm going to be exposed as a criminal. That's a sheep's head. And, thank you for the thought, Amesbury, it's wearing sunglasses. Chapter 9 Cribbins fights his teeth. Theological advice. That's what I call entertainment. Mr. Fusspot's magic toy, Sir Joshua's books, breaking into banking, the minds of policemen, what about the gold? Cribbins warms up, the return of Professor Fleed, unfortunately. Moist counts his blessings, a werewolf revealed. Splot, it does you good. Time to pray. I'm afraid I have to close the office now, reverend. The voice of Miss Hauser broke into Cribbins's dreams. We open up again at nine o'clock tomorrow, it added hopefully. Cribbins opened his eyes. The warmth and the steady ticking of the clock had lulled him into a wonderful doze. Miss Hauser was standing there, not gloriously naked and pink, as so recently featured in the reverie, but in a plain brown coat and an unsuitable hat with feathers in it. Suddenly awake, he fumbled urgently in his pocket for his dentures, not trusting them with the custody of his mouth while he slept he turned his head away in a flurry of unaccustomed embarrassment, as he fought to get them in, and then fought again to get them in and the right way up. They always fought back. In desperation, he wrenched them out and banged them sharply on the arm of the chair once or twice to break their spirit, before ramming them into his mouth once more. it <coughs> said Cribbins, and slapped the side of his face. "'Why, thank you, ma'am,' he said, dabbing at his mouth with his handkerchief. "'I'm sorry about that, but I'm a martyr to them, I swear.' "'I didn't like to disturb you,' Mrs. Hauser went on, her horrified expression fading. "'I'm sure you needed your sleep.' "'Not sleeping, ma'am, but contemplating,' said Cribbins, standing up. "'Contemplating the fall of the unrighteous and the elevation of the godly. Is it not said that the last shall be first and the first shall be last?' "'You know, I've always been a bit worried about that,' said Miss Hauser. "'I mean, what happens to the people who aren't first but aren't really last either? You know, jogging along doing their best?' She strolled toward the door in a manner which, quite subtly, as she thought, invited him to accompany her. "'A conundrum indeed, Berenice,' said Cribbins, following her. "'The holy Texts don't mention it, but I have no doubt that—' His forehead creased. Cribbins was seldom troubled by religious questions, and this one was pretty difficult. He rose to it like a born theologian. "'I have no doubt that they will be found still jogging along, but possibly in the opposite direction.' "'Back towards the last,' she said, looking worried. Ah, dear lady, remember that they will by then be the first. "'Oh, yes, I hadn't thought of it like that. That's the only way it could work, unless, of course, the original first would wait for the last to catch up.' "'That would be a miracle indeed,' said Cribbins, watching her lock the door behind them. The evening air was sharp and unwelcoming after the warmth of the newspaper room, and made the prospect of another night in the flop-house in Monkey Street seem doubly unwelcome.' He needed his own miracle right now, and he had a feeling that one was shaping up right here. "'I expect it's very hard for you, Reverend, finding a place to stay,' Ms. Hauser said. He couldn't make out her expression in the gloom. "'Oh, I have faith, Shishtow,' he said. "'If Om does not come, he sends ah And at a time like this a spring had slipped. It was a judgment, but agonizing as it was, it might yet have its blessing— Miss Houser was bearing down on him with the look of a woman determined to do good at any price. Oh, it hurt, though. It had snapped right across his tongue. A voice behind him said, "'Excuse me, I couldn't help noticing. Are you Mr. Cribbins by any chance?' Enraged by the pain in his mouth, Cribbins turned with murder in his heart. But that's Reverend Cribbins, thank you,' said Miss Houser, and his fists unclenched. shme he muttered. A pale young man, in an old-fashioned clerk's robe, was staring at him. "'My name is heretofore,' he said. "'And if you are, Cribbins, I know a rich man who wants to meet you. It could be your lucky day.' "Is that so,' muttered Cribbins. "'And if that man is called Cosmo, I want to meet him. It could be his lucky day too. Ain't we the lucky ones?' You must have had a moment of dread, said Moist, as they relaxed in the marble-floored sitting-room. At least, Adora Bell relaxed. Moist was searching. I don't know what you're talking about, she said, as he opened a cupboard. Golems weren't built to be free. They don't know how to handle stuff. They'll learn. And she wouldn't have hurt the dog, said Adora Bell, watching him pace the room. You weren't sure. I heard the way you were talking to her. Put down the ladle and turn around slowly sort of thing. Moist pulled open a drawer. Are you looking for something? A set of bank keys. There should be a set of them somewhere around. Adorabel joined in. It was that or argue about Gladys. Besides, the suite had a great many drawers and cupboards, and it was something to do while dinner was prepared. What is this key for? She asked after a mere few seconds. Moist turned. Adorabel held up a silvery key on a ring. No, there'll be a lot more than that, said Moist. Where did you find that anyway? She pointed to the big desk. I just touched the side here, and—oh, it didn't do it this time. It took Moist more than a minute to find the trigger that slid the little drawer out. Shut, it disappeared seamlessly into the grain of the wood. It must be for something important, he said, heading for another desk. Maybe he kept the rest of the keys in a drawer. Just try it on anything. I've just been camping here, really. I don't know what's in half of these drawers. He returned to a bureau and was sifting through its contents when he heard a click and a creak behind him. And Adora Bell said, in a rather flat voice, "You did say he entertained young ladies up here, right?" Apparently, yes. Why? Well, that's what I call entertainment. Moist turned. The door of a heavy cupboard stood wide open. Oh, no! He said, "What's all that for?" You are joking. Well, yes, all right, but it's all. So, so black. And leathery, said Adorabelle. Possibly rubbery, too. They advanced on the museum of inventive erotica just revealed. Some of it, freed at last from confinement, unfolded, slid, or in a few cases, bounced onto the floor. This, moist prodded something which went spoing, is, yes, rubbery. Definitely rubbery. But all this here is pretty much frilly, said Adorabelle. He must have run out of ideas. Either that, or there were no more ideas to be had. I I think he was eighty when he died, said Moist, as a seismic shift caused some more piles to slide and slither downward. Well done, him, said Adorabelle. Oh, and there's a couple of shelves of books, too, Adorabelle went on, investigating the gloom at the back of the cupboard. Just here, behind the rather curious saddle and the whips. "'Bedtime reading, I assume.' "'I don't think so,' said Moist, pulling out a leather-bound volume and flicking it open at a random page. "'Look, it's the old boy's journal. Years and years of it. Good grief, there's decades.' "'Let's publish it and make a fortune,' said Adora Bell, kicking the heap. "'Plain covers, of course.' "'No, you don't understand. There may be something in here about Mr. Bent. There's some secret—' Moist ran a finger along the spines, let's see, he's fifty-two. He came here when he was about thirteen, and a few months later some people came looking for him. Old Lavish didn't like the look of them. Ah! He pulled out a couple of volumes. These should tell us something. They're around the right time. What are these, and why do they jingle? Adorabelle said, holding up a couple of strange devices. How should I know? You're a man. Well, yes, and. I mean, I don't go in for this stuff. You know— I think it's like horseradish, said Adora Bell thoughtfully. Pardon? Like, well, horseradish is good in a beef sandwich, so you have some. But one day a spoonful just doesn't cut the mustard. As it were, said Moist, fascinated. And so you have two, and soon it's three, and eventually there's more horseradish than beef, and then one day you realise the beef fell out and you didn't notice. I don't think... That is the metaphor you're looking for, said Moist, because I have known you to make yourself a horseradish sandwich. All right, but it's still a good one, said Adorabel. She reached down and picked up something from the floor. Your keys, I think. What they were doing in there we shall never know with any luck. Moist took them. The ring was heavy with keys of all sizes. And what shall we do with all this stuff? Adorabel kicked the heap again. It quivered, and somewhere inside something squeaked. Put it back in the cupboard, Moist suggested, uncertainly. The pile of passionless frippery had a brooding alien look, like some sea monster of the abyss that had been dragged unceremoniously from its native darkness into the light of the sun. I don't think I could face it, said Adora Bell. Let's just leave the door open and let it crawl back by itself. Hey! This was to Mr. Fusspot, who'd trotted smartly out of the room with something in his mouth. Tell me that was just an old rubber bone, she said. "'Please?' "'No,' said Moist, shaking his head. "'I think that would definitely be the wrong description. "'I think it was... was... it was not an old rubber bone, is what it was.' "'Now, look,' said Hubert, "'don't you think we'd know if the gold had been stolen? "'People talk about that sort of thing. "'I'm pretty certain it's a fault in the crossover multivalve right here.' He tapped a thin glass tube. I don't think the glooper is wrong, sir, said Igor gloomily. Igor, you realise that if the glooper is right, then I'll have to believe there is practically no gold in our vaults. I believe the glooper is not in error, sir. Igor took a dollar out of his pocket and walked over to the well. If you would be so good as to watch the lost money column, sir, he said, and dropped the coin into the dark waters. It gleamed for a moment as it sank beyond the pockets of mankind. In one corner of the glooper's convoluted glass tubing, a small blue bubble drifted up, dawdling from side to side as it rose and burst on the surface with a faint gloop. "'Oh, dear,' said Hubert. The comic convention when two people are dining at a table designed to accommodate twenty— is that they sit at either end. Moist and Adora Bell didn't try it, but instead huddled together. Gladys stood at the other end, a napkin over one arm, her eyes two sullen glows. The sheep skull didn't help Moist's frame of mind at all. Peggy had arranged it as a centrepiece with flowers around it. The sunglasses were getting on his nerves. How good is a golem's hearing, he said. Extremely said Adora Bell. Look, don't worry, I have a plan. Oh, good. No, seriously. I'll take her out tomorrow. Can't you just—Moist hesitated and then mouthed, change the words in her head. She's a free golem, said Adora Bell sharply. How would you like it? Moist remembered Owlswick and the turnip. Not much, he admitted. With free golems, you should change minds by persuasion. I think I can do that. Aren't your golden golems due to arrive tomorrow? I hope so. It's going to be a busy day. I'm going to launch paper money, and you're going to march gold through the streets. We couldn't leave them underground. Anyway, they might not be golden. I'll go and see Fleed in the morning. We will go and see him, together. She patted Moist's arm. Never mind. There could be worse things than golden golems. I can't think what they are, said Moist, a phrase that he later regretted. I'd like to take people's minds off gold. He stopped and stared at the sheep, which stared back in a calm way. For some reason, Moist felt it should have a saxophone and a little black beret. Surely they looked in the vault, he said aloud. Who looked? said Adora Bell. That's where he'd go. The one thing you can depend on, right? The foundation of all that's worthy. Who'd go? Mr. Bent is in the gold vault, said Moist, standing up so quickly that his chair fell over. He's got all the keys. Sorry, is this the man who went haywire after making a simple mistake? That's him. He's got a past. One of those with a capital P? Exactly. Come on, let's get down now. I thought we were going to have a romantic evening. We will, right after we get him out. The only sound in the vaults was the tap-tap-tapping of Adorabel's foot. It was really getting on Moist's nerves as he paced up and down in front of the gold room by the light of the silver candlesticks that had been gracing the dining-room table. "'I just hope Amesbury is keeping the broth warm,' said Adorabel. "'Tap-tap, tap-tap. Look,' said Moist. "'Firstly, to open a safe like this you need to have a name like Fingers McGee, and secondly, these little lockpicks aren't up to the job.' Well, let's go and find Mr. McGee. He's probably got the right sort. Tap, 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 tap. That won't be any good, because thirdly, there's probably no such person, and fourthly, the vault is locked from the inside, and I think he's left the key in the lock, which is why none of these work. He waved the key ring. Fifthly, I'm trying to turn the key from this side with tweezers, an old trick which, it turns out, does not work. Good. So... We can go back to the suite. Tap, 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 tap. Moist peered again through the little spy hole in the door. A heavy plate had been slid across it on the inside and he could just make out a glimmer of light around the edges. There was a lamp in there. What there was not, as far as he knew, was any kind of ventilation. It looked as if the vault had been built before the idea of breathing caught on. It was a man-made cave, built to contain something you never intended to take out. Gold didn't choke. I don't think we have the option, he said, because, sixthly, he's running out of air. He may even be dead. If he's dead, can we leave him until tomorrow? It's freezing down here. Tap-tap, tap-tap. Moist looked up at the ceiling. It was made of ancient oak beams strapped together with iron bands. He knew what old oak could be like. It could be like steel, only nastier. It blunted axes and bounced hammers back in their owners' faces. Can't the guards help? Adorabelle ventured. "'I doubt it,' said Moist. "'Anyway, I don't particularly want to encourage the idea that they can spend the night breaking into the vault. But they're mostly city watch, aren't they? So, when a man is legging it for the horizon with as much gold as he can carry, he doesn't worry much about what his old job was. I'm a criminal, trust me.' He walked toward the stairs, counting under his breath. "'And now what are you doing?' Working out which part of the bank is directly over the gold, said Moist. But do you know what? I think I already know. The gold room is right under his desk. The lamp had burned low and oily smoke swirled and settled on the sacks where Mr. Bent lay curled up in a tight ball. There was sound above and voices muffled by the ancient ceiling. One of them said, I can't budge it. All right, Gladys, over to you. "'Is this ladylike behaviour? a second voice rumbled. "'Oh, yes, it counts as moving furniture,' said a voice that was clearly female. "'Very well. I shall lift it up and dust underneath it.' There was the thunder of wood being scraped on wood, and a little dust fell onto the piled bullion. "'Very dusty indeed. I shall fetch a broom. Actually, Gladys, I'd like you to lift up the floor now,' said the first voice. "'There may be dust underneath that too.' I'm certain of it. Very well. There were several thumps that made the beams creak, and then a rumble of, It does not say anything about dusting under the floor in Lady Wagon's book of household management. Gladys, a man may be dying under there. I see that would be untidy. The beams rattled under a blow. Lady Wagon says that any bodies found during a weekend party should be disposed of discreetly in case of scandal. Three more blows and a beam shattered. Lady Wagon says watchmen are disrespectful and do not wipe their dirty boots. Another beam cracked. Light lanced down. A hand the size of a shovel appeared, grabbed one of the iron straps and snapped it. Moist peered into the gloom while smoke poured up past him. He's down there. Ye gods, this reeks. Adorabel looked over his shoulder. Is he alive? I certainly hope so. Moist eased himself between the beams and dropped onto the bullion boxes. After a moment, he called up. There's a pulse. And there's a key in the lock, too. Can you come down the stairs and give me a hand? Er, we have visitors? Adorabel called down. A couple of helmeted heads were now outlined against the light. Damn it! Using off-duty watchmen was all very well, but they tended to take their badges everywhere with them, and were just the sort of people who jumped to conclusions merely because they'd found a man standing in the wreckage of a bank vault after hours. The words, Look, I can explain, presented themselves for utterance, but Moist strangled them just in time. It was his bank, after all. Well, what do you want? he demanded. This was sufficiently unexpected to throw the men, but one of them rallied. Is this your bank vault, sir? he said. "'I'm the deputy chairman, you idiot, and there's a sick man down here.' "'Did he fall when you were breaking into the vault, sir?' "'God, you just couldn't budge them. They just kept going in that patient, grinding tone. When you were a policeman, everything was a crime. "'Officer, you are a copper, right?' "'Constable Addict, sir.' "'Well, Constable, can we get my colleague into the fresh air? He's wheezing. "'I'll unlock the door down here.' Haddock nodded to the other guard, who hurried away toward the stairs. "'If you had a key, sir, why did you break in?' "'To get him out, of course. So, oh—' "'It's all perfectly sensible,' said Moist. "'Once I've got out of here, we will all have a laugh.' "'I shall look forward to that, sir,' said Haddock. "'Because I like a laugh.' Talking to the watch was like tap-dancing on a landslide. If you were nimble, you could stay upright.' But you couldn't steer, and there were no brakes, and you just knew that it was going to end in a certain amount of fuss. It wasn't Constable Haddock anymore. It had stopped being Constable Haddock just as soon as Constable Haddock had found that the pockets of the master of the Royal Mint contained a velvet roll of lockpicks and a blackjack. And then it became Sergeant Detritus. Lockpicks, as Moist knew, were technically not illegal. Owning them was fine. Owning them while standing in someone else's house was not fine. Owning them while being found in a stricken bank vault was so far from fine it could see the curvature of the universe. So far, to Sergeant Detritus, so good. However, the sergeant's grasp began to slip when confronted with the evidence that Moist, quite legitimately, had the keys for the vault he had broken into. This seemed to the troll to be a criminal act in itself, and he'd toyed for a while with the charge, wasting watch time by breaking in when you didn't have to. Wasting watch time is an offence committed by citizens who have found ways of wasting said time that haven't already been invented by the watch themselves. He didn't understand about the visceral need for the lockpicks. Trolls didn't have a word for machismo in the same way that puddles don't have a word for water. He also had a problem with the mindset and actions of the nearly late Mr. Bent. Trolls don't go mad, they get mad. So he gave up, and it became Captain Carrot. Moist knew him of old. He was big and smelled of soap, and his normal expression was one of blue-eyed innocence. Moist couldn't see behind that amiable face, just couldn't see a thing. He could read most people, but the captain was a closed book in a locked bookcase, and the man was always courteous in that really annoying way police have. He said, Good evening, politely as he sat down opposite Moist, in the little office that had suddenly become an interview room. "'Can I start, sir, by asking you about the three men down in the cellar, and the big uh, glass thing?' "'Mr. Hubert Turvey and his assistants,' said Moist, "'they are studying the economic system of the city. They're not involved in this. Come to think of it, I'm not involved in this either. There is, in fact, no, this. I have explained all this to the sergeant.' "'Sergeant Detritus thinks you are too smart, Mr. Lipwig," said Captain Carrot, opening his notebook. "'Well, yes. I expect he thinks that about most people, doesn't he?' Carrot's expression changed not one iota. "'Can you tell me why there is a golem downstairs who is wearing a dress and keeps ordering my men to wipe their dirty boots?' he said. "'Not without sounding mad, no. What has this got to do with anything?' "'I don't know, sir. I hope to find out. Who is Lady Deirdre Wagon?" She writes rather out-of-date books on etiquette and household management for young ladies who would like to be the type of women who have time to arrange flowers. Uh, Look, is this relevant? I don't know that, sir. I am endeavouring to assess the situation. Can you tell me why a small dog is running around the building in possession of what I shall call a wind-up item of an intimate nature? I think it is because my sanity is slipping away, said Moist. Look. The only thing that is important here is that Mr. Bent had a nasty turn and locked himself in the gold vault. I had to get him out quickly.' "'Ah, yes, the gold vault,' said the captain. "'Can we talk about the gold for a moment?' "'What's wrong with the gold?' "'I was hoping you could tell us, sir. I believe you wanted to sell it to the dwarfs.' "'What?' "'Well, yes, I said that, but it was only to make a point.' "'A point,' said Captain Carrot, solemnly writing this down. Look. I know how this sort of thing goes, said Moist. You just keep me talking in the hope that I'll suddenly forget where I am and say something stupid and incriminating, right? Thank you for that, sir, said Captain Carrot, turning over another page in his notebook. Thank me for what? For telling me you know how this sort of thing goes, sir. See, Moist told himself, this is what happens when you get too comfortable. You lose the edge. Even a copper can outsmart you. The captain looked up. I will tell you, Mr. Lipwig, that some of what you say has been corroborated by an unbiased witness who could not possibly be an accomplice. You talked to Gladys, said Moist. Gladys being—she's the one going on about dirty boots. How can a golem be a she, sir? Ah, I know this one. The correct answer is, how can a golem be a he? An interesting point, sir. That explains the dress, then. Out of interest, how much weight would you say a golem can carry? I don't know. A couple of tons, maybe. What are you getting at? I don't know, sir," said Carrot cheerfully. Commander Vimes says that when life hands you a mess of spaghetti, you just keep pulling it till you find the meatball. In fact, your story, in so far as he understood it, agrees with what we have been told by a Mister Fusspot. You talked to the dog. Well, he is the chairman of the bank, sir," said the captain. How did you understand what? Ah. You have a werewolf, right? said Moist, grinning. We don't confirm that, sir. Everyone knows it's knobby knobs, you know. Do they, sir? Gosh! Anyway, your movements this evening are accounted for. Good. Thank you. Moist started to rise. However, your movements earlier this week, sir, are not— Moist sat down again. Well, I don't have to account for them, do I? It might help us, sir. How would it help you? It might help us understand why there is no gold in the vault, sir. It's a small detail in the great scheme of things, but it is something of a puzzler. At which point, somewhere close at hand, Mr. Fusspot began to bark. Cosmo Lavish sat at his desk with his fingers steepled in front of his mouth, watching Cribbens eat. Not many people in a state to make a choice had ever done this for more than thirty seconds. The soup is good he said. Cribbins lowered the bowl after one lengthy final gurgle. Champion, your lordship. Cribbins removed a grey rag from his pocket, and he's going to take his teeth out right now here at the table, thought Cosmo amazing. Ah, oh, yes, and there's still bits of carrot in them. Don't hesitate to repair your teeth, he said, as Cribbins removed a bent fork from a pocket. I'm a martyr to them, sir, said Cribbins. I'll swear they're out to get me. Springs twanged as he fought them with the fork, and then, apparently satisfied, he wrestled them back onto his grey gums and champed them into place. "'Acts better,' he announced. "'Good,' said Cosmo. "'And now, in view of the nature of your allegations, which Drumnod here has carefully transcribed and you have signed, let me ask you, why have you not gone to Lord Vetinari?' "'I've knowed men escaped the noose, sir,' said Cribbins. "'It ain't too hard if you got the reddish.' but I've never heard of one get a big plum job the very next day. Government job, too. Then suddenly he's a banker, no less. Someone's watching over him, and I don't think it's a bleeding fairy. If I was to go to veterinary, then I'd be a bit silly, right? But he's got your bank, and you ain't, which is a shame. So, I'm your manager. At a price, I have no doubt. Well, yes. Something in the way of expenses would help, yes. And you are sure that Lipvig and Spangler are one and the same? It's the smile, sir. You never forget it. And he has a gift of chatting to people. He makes people want to do things his way. It's like magic, the little ingrate. Cosmo stared at him and then said, Give the Reverend fifty dollars, Drum here to four, and direct him to a good hotel, one where they might have a hot tab available. Fifty dollars? growled Cribbins, and then please go ahead with that little acquisition, will you? "'Yes, sir, of course,' Cosmo pulled a piece of paper toward him, dipped a pen in the inkwell, and began to write furiously. Fifty dollars,' said Cribbins again, appalled at the minimum wage of sin. Cosmo looked up, and stared at the man as if seeing him for the first time, and not enjoying the novelty. "'Yes, fifty dollars indeed, for now, reverend.' said Cosmo soothingly, and in the morning, if your memory is still as good, we will all look forward to a richer and righteous future. Do not let me detain you. He returned to his paperwork. Heretofore grabbed Cribbins' arm and towed him forcibly out of the room. He would seen what Cosmo was writing. Veterinary, 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 It was time for the sword-stick, he thought. Get it, hand it over, and run. Things were quiet in the Department of Postmortem Communications. They were never very loud at the best of times, although you always got, when the sounds of the university slid into silence, the reedy little gnat-sized voices leaking through from the other side. The trouble was, thought Hicks, that too many of his predecessors Had never had any kind of a life outside the department, where social skills were not a priority, and even when dead, had completely failed to get a life either. So they hung around the department, reluctant to leave the place. Sometimes, when they were feeling strong and the Dolly Sisters players were doing a new production, he let them out to paint the scenery. Hicks sighed. That was the trouble with working in the DPC. You could never exactly be the boss. In an ordinary job, people retired. Wandered back to the old workplace a few times while there were those who remembered them, and then faded into the ever swelling past. But the former staff here never seemed to go. There was a saying, Old necromancers never die. When he told them this, people would say, And? And Hicks would have to reply, That's all of it, I'm afraid. Just old necromancers never die. He was just tidying up for the night when, from his shadowy corner, Charlie said, Somebody coming through. "'Well, I say, somebody!' Hicks spun around. The magic circle was glowing, and a pearly, pointy hat was already rising through the solid floor. "'Professor Fleed,' he said. "'Yes, we must hurry, young man,' said the shade of Fleed, still rising. "'But but I banished you. I, I used the ninefold erasure. It banishes everything.' "'I wrote it,' said Fleed, looking smug. "'Oh, don't worry. I'm the only one it doesn't work on. Ha!' <laughs> I'd be a damn fool to design a spell to work on myself, eh? Hicks pointed a shaking finger. You put in a hidden portal, didn't you? Of course. A bloody good one. Don't worry. I'm the only one who knows where it is, too. The whole of Fleed was floating above the circle now. And don't try to look for it. A man of your limited talent will never find the hidden rooms. Fleed looked around the room. Isn't that wonderful young lady here? He said, hopefully. Well, never mind. You must get me out of this place, Hicks. I want to see the fun. Fun? What fun? said Hicks, a man planning to look through the ninefold erasure spell very, very carefully. I know what kind of golems are coming. When he was a child, Moist had prayed every night before going to bed. His family were very active in the plain potato church, which shunned the excesses of the ancient and orthodox potato church. Its followers were retiring, industrious, and inventive, and their strict adherence to oil lamps and homemade furniture made them stand out in the region where most people used candles and sat on sheep. He'd hated praying. It felt as though he was opening a big black hole into space, and at any moment something might reach through and grab him. This may have been because the standard bedtime prayer included the line, If I die before I wake, which on bad nights caused him to try and sit up until morning. He'd also been instructed to use the hours before sleep to count his blessings. Lying here now, in the darkness of the bank, rather cold and significantly alone, he sought for some. His teeth were good, and he wasn't suffering from premature hair loss. There, that wasn't so hard, was it? And the watch hadn't actually arrested him, as such. But there was a troll guarding the vault, which had ominous black and yellow ropes strung around it. No gold in the vault. Well, Even that wasn't entirely true. There was five pounds of it at least coating the lead ingots. Someone had done a pretty good job there. That was a silver lining, right? At least it was some gold. It wasn't as if there was no gold at all, right? He was alone because Bell was spending a night in the cells for assaulting an officer of the watch. Moist considered that this was unfair. Of course, Depending on what kind of a day a copper has had, there is no action short of being physically somewhere else that may not be construed as an assault. But Adora Bell hadn't actually assaulted Sergeant Detritus. She'd merely attempted to stab his huge foot with her shoe, which resulted in a broken heel and a twisted ankle. Captain Carrot said that this had been taken into consideration. The clocks of the city chimed four, and Moist considered his future, specifically in terms of length. Look on the bright side he might just be hanged. He should have gone down to the vaults on day one, with an alchemist and a lawyer in tow. Didn't they ever audit the vaults? Was it done by a bunch of jolly decent chaps who'd poke their head into some other chap's vault and sign off on it quickly, so as not to miss lunch? Can't go doubting a chap's word, eh? Especially when you didn't want him to doubt yours. Maybe the late Sir Joshua had blown it all on exotic leather goods and young ladies. "'How many knights in the arms of beautiful women "'were worth a sack of gold? "'The price of a good woman was proverbially above rubies, "'so a bad one was presumably a lot more. "'He sat up and lit the candle, "'and his eye fell on Mr. Lavish's journal "'on the bedside table. Forty years ago. "'Well, it was the right year, "'and since at the moment he had nothing else to do. "'The luck that had been draining from his boots all day "'came back to him. "'Even though he wasn't certain what he was looking for, he found it on the sixth random page. A pair of funny-looking people came to the bank today, asking for the boy bent. I bade the staff send him away. He is doing exceedingly well. One wonders what he must have suffered. Quite a lot of the journal seemed to be in some sort of code, but the nature of the secret symbols suggested that Mr. Lavish painstakingly recorded every amorous affair. You had to admire his directness, at least. He'd worked out what he wanted to get from life, and had set out to get as much of it as he could. Moist had to take his hat off to the man. And what had he wanted? He'd never sat down to think about it, but mostly he wanted tomorrow to be different from today. He looked at his watch, 4.15, and no one about but the guards. There were watchmen on the main doors. He was indeed not under arrest, but this was one of those civilized little arrangements He was not under arrest, provided that he didn't try to act like a man who was not under arrest. Ah, he thought, as he pulled on his trousers, there was another small blessing. He had been there when Mr. Fusspot proposed to the werewolf, which was, by then, balancing on one of the huge ornamental urns that grew like toadstools in the bank's corridors. It was rocking. So was Corporal Nobbs, who was laughing himself sick at Mr. Fusspot who was bouncing up and down with wonderfully optimistic enthusiasm. But he was holding in his mouth his new toy, which appeared to have been mysteriously wound up, and fate had decreed that at the top of each jump its unbalancing action would cause the little dog to do one slow cartwheel in the air. And Moist thought, "'So, the werewolf is female and has a watch badge on her collar, and I've seen that hair colour before.' but his gaze had gone straight back to Mr. Fusspot, who was jumping and spinning with a look of total bliss on his little face. And then Captain Carrot had plucked him out of the air, the werewolf fled, and the show was over. But he'd always have the memory. Next time he walked past Sergeant Angua, he'd growl under his breath, although that would probably constitute assault. Now, fully dressed, he went for a walk along endless corridors. The watch had put a lot of new guards in the bank for the night, Captain Carrot was clever, you had to give him that. They were trolls. Trolls were very hard to talk around to your point of view. He could sense them watching him everywhere he went. There wasn't one at the door into the undercroft, but Moist's heart sank when he neared the pool of brilliant light around the glooper and saw one standing by the door to freedom. Alswick was lying on a mattress and snoring, his paintbrush in his hand. Moist envied him. Hubert and Igor were working on the tangle of glassware which Moist could swear looked bigger every time he came down here. What's wrong? Wrong? Nothing. Nothing's wrong, said Hubert. It's all fine. Is something wrong? Why do you think something is wrong? What would make you think there's something wrong? Moist yawned. Any coffee? Tea? he suggested. For you, Mr. Lipbig, said Igor, I will make a splot. Splot? Real splot? Indeed, sir, said Igor smugly. You can't buy it here, you know. I'm aware of that, sir. It has now been outlawed in most of the old country, too, said Igor, rummaging in a sack. Outlawed? It's been outlawed. But it's just a herbal drink. My granny used to make it. Indeed, it was very traditional, Igor agreed. It put hairs on your chest. Yes, she used to complain about that. This is an alcoholic beverage, said Hubert nervously. Absolutely not said Moist. My granny never touched alcohol. He thought for a moment and then added, Except maybe aftershave. Splots made from tree bark. Oh, well, that sounds nice, said Hubert. Igor retired to his jungle of equipment and there was the clinking of glassware. Moist sat down at the cluttered bench. How's it going in your world, Hubert, he said. The water gurgling around okay is it? It's fine, fine, it's all fine. Nothing is wrong at all. Hubert went blank, fished out his notebook, glanced at a page, and put it back. How are you? Me? Oh, great! Except that there should be ten tons of gold in the gold vaults, and there isn't. It sounded as though a glass had broken in the direction of Igor, and Hubert stared in horror at Moist. Ha! 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 He said. Ha! 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 There was a blur as Igor leapt the table and grabbed Hubert. Sorry, Mister Livpig he said over his shoulder. "'This can go on for hours.' He slapped Hubert twice across the face and pulled a jar out of his pocket. "'Mr. Hubert, how many fingers am I holding up?' Hubert slowly focused. Thirteen? he quavered. Igor relaxed and dropped the jar back into his pocket. "'Just in time. Well done, sir.' "'I'm sore sorry,' Hubert began. "'Don't worry about it. I'm feeling a bit that way myself,' said Moist. "'So, uh, this gold!' "'Have you any idea who took it?' "'No, but it must have been an inside job,' said Moist. "'And now the watch are going to pin it on me, I suspect.' "'Will that mean you won't be in charge?' said Hubert. "'I doubt I'll be allowed to run the bank from inside the tante.' "'Oh, dear!' said Hubert, looking at Igor. "'Um, what would happen if it was put back?' Igor coughed loudly. "'I think that's unlikely, don't you?' said Moist. Yes, but Igor told me that when the post- office burned down last year, the gods themselves gave you the money to rebuild it. <coughs> said Igor. I doubt if that's likely twice, said moist, and I don't think there's a god of banking. One might take it on for the publicity, said Hubert desperately. It could be worth a prayer <coughs> said Igor louder this time. Moist looked from one to the other, o okay, k he thought. "'Something's going on, and I'm not going to be told what it is. "'Pray to the gods to get a big heap of gold? When had that ever worked?' "'Well, last year it worked, true, but that was because I already knew where a big heap of gold was buried. The gods helped those who helped themselves, and, my word, <laughs> didn't I help myself?' "'You think it's really worth it?' said Moist. A small, steaming mug was placed in front of him. Your plot, said Igor. The word's now, please drink it up and go, accompanied it in every respect but the vocal. Do you think I should pray, Igor? said Moist, watching his face. I couldn't say. The Igor position on prayer is that it is nothing more than hope with a beat to it. Moist leaned closer and whispered, Igor, as one ubervault lad to another, your lisp just departed. Igor's frown grew. Sorry, sir, I have a lot on my mind, he said. "'rolling his eyes to indicate the nervous Hubert. "'My fault. "'I'm disturbing you good people,' said Moist, "'emptying the cup in one go. "'Any minute now the... "'Ah, yes, splot,' thought Moist. "'It contained herbs and all natural ingredients. "'But belladonna was a herb, and arsenic was natural. "'There was no alcohol in it,' people said, "'because alcohol couldn't survive. "'But... A cup of hot splot got men out of bed and off to work when there was six feet of snow outside and the well was frozen. It left you clear-headed and quick-thinking. It was only a shame that the human tongue couldn't keep up. Moist blinked once or twice and said, He said his goodbyes, even if they were his and headed back up the length of the undercroft, the light from the glooper pushing his shadow in front of him. Trolls watched him suspiciously as he climbed the steps, trying to keep his feet from flying away from him his brain buzzed, but it had nothing to do. There was nothing to grab hold of, to worry a solution from, and in an hour or so, the country edition of the Times would be out, and very shortly after, so would he. There would be a run on the bank, which is a horrifying thing at best, and the other banks wouldn't help him out, would they, because he wasn't a chap. Disgrace and ignominy and Mr. Fusspot were staring him in the face, but only one of them was licking it. He'd made it to his office then. Splot certainly took your mind off all your little problems by rolling them into the big one of keeping all of yourself on one planet. He accepted the little dog's ritual slobbering kiss, got off his knees, and made it as far as the chair. Okay, sitting down, he could do that, but his mind raced. People would be here soon. There were too many unanswered questions. What to do? What to do? Pray? Moist wasn't too keen on prayer, not because he thought the gods didn't exist but because he was afraid they might. All right, Anoya had got a good deal out of him, and he'd noticed her shiny new temple the other day, its frontage already hung with votive egg-slicers, fondant whisks, ladles, parsnip-butterers, and many other useless appliances donated by grateful worshippers who had faced the prospect of a life with their drawers stuck. Anoya delivered, because she specialised. She didn't even pretend to offer a paradise, eternal verities, or any kind of salvation. She just left you with a smooth pulling action and access to the forks, and practically no one had believed in her before he'd picked her, at random, as one of the gods to thank for the miraculous windfall. Would she remember? If he had some gold stuck in a drawer, then maybe. Turning dross into gold? Probably not. Still, you turned to the gods when all you had left was a prayer. He wandered into the little kitchen and took a ladle off the hook. Then he went back to the office and rammed it into a desk drawer where it stuck, this being the chief function of ladles in the world. Rattle your drawers, that was it. She was attracted to the noise, apparently. Oh, annoyer, he said, tugging at the drawer handle. This is me, moist von Lipwig, penitent sinner. I don't know if you remember. We are, all of us, mere utensils, stuck in drawers of our own making, and none more than I. If you could find time in your busy schedule to unstick me in my hour of need, you will not find me wanting in gratitude. Yea, indeed, when we put the gods on the roof of the new post office. I never liked the urns on the old one. Covered in gold leaf, too, by the way. Thanking you in anticipation, Amen. He gave the drawer one last tug. The ladle sprang out, twanging through the air like a leaping salmon, and smashed a vase in the corner. Moist decided to take that as a hopeful sign was supposed to smell cigarette smoke if Annoya was present, but since Adora Bell had spent more than ten minutes in this room, there was no point in sniffing. What next? Well, the gods helped those who helped themselves, and there was always one last Lipvig-friendly option. It floated up in his mind. Wing it. <laughs>